This is David McCall, host of the QTS Experience Podcast. There are deep learning tools that are available to us today that have the power of magic. I can create a photorealistic image of an orangutan cowboy riding a glass lizard just using the power of language. I can speak something into existence. And most times, you can't tell that a machine created it. That's pretty cool. Now, I don't know how valuable that picture would be, but the potential of the technology is incredible. That doesn't just happen in the world of fantasy and images, but in the world of poetry, creative writing, and who knows where else it will go. And that begs the question, where's the line between machine and human, reality and imagination? If we thought robots were going to disrupt the marketplace and perhaps take jobs, what's the consequence of the internet getting involved? Well, I invited my friend James Cage to join us today. James studied data science and engineering from Georgia Tech University and has spent a career learning how to build and automate processes and tools. He regularly engages with these ideas in his new creative journey and has a fascinating story to tell and what it could mean to help human beings flourish. So please sit back and enjoy the conversation on the next QTS Experience. The most valuable commodity on earth today is data, how we make it, use it, move it, and protect it. My name's David McCall. Join me today for the QTS Experience. The other day, you and I were having a conversation. We were actually playing a board game. We were playing right. it online. And you asked me this random question, which I didn't, I couldn't relate it to what, you know, where's Where's my genius friend James Cage coming from with this? And you said something like, I don't know, cats made out of glass in a gloomy night or in the desert playing poker. And I was like, what are you talking about? And what I didn't realize is that you were, um, you were feeding that string of data points into a tool that then generated some pictures and you shared that with uh, me and our mutual friend, George. And we started cracking up because they were, you know, a very interesting image. And you told us it was a tool that did that. Okay. So, and, and then you just started riffing on it and it ended up making these beautiful, incredible pictures. And then you told us about this whole sort of, sort of uh, journey of discovery you're on. So let's just start with these tools. Right. What is it that I'm describing, um, uh, the tool in particular, and how did you come to be messing around with something like that? What we were doing that day, we were playing a board game, mm -hmm. and I was full of enthusiasm. Which my wife really believes I was doing yard work, so let's not right. let her hear this. Uh, sorry, Rita. Um, I was full of enthusiasm for this new type of tool that had come out, and we're seeing instances of these as we're talking today like just in the last few days, they're releasing more uh, applications of this, and we'll talk more about that, I'm sure. Yeah. But what we were talking about is the uh, foundational model AI mm -hmm. called DALI. Mm. And DALI is a descendant of an earlier model called GPT-3, which has got its own wealth of fun stuff you can do with it. Mm -hmm. But the idea is that we're looking at a new class of artificial intelligence that can be used for multiple things. And one of the things that this model can be used for is to take text, take a verbal description, mm -hmm. and turn it into an image. Not an image that's been found on the web, 
but an image that the model creates based on the rules that it has deduced mm. from imaging or reviewing 12 million different images that the company that makes the software has scavenged or mined from the World Wide Web. Mm. I'm full of enthusiasm about this. I've been playing with it. Uh, and I felt that it was sort of a part of my journey in terms of understanding <coughs> a lot of what's coming out with uh, data mining, with artificial intelligence, with machine learning, all the different things under the umbrella of data science. Mm. So when you started messing around with it, mm -hmm. when I started messing around with it with you, like we were, right. you had the account, we just started giving you stuff to try. One of the first things that was really interesting to me was, well, one, you could specify like different perspectives, use right. a lens perspective like this, or the, give it in a form of modern art or right. in a, you know, some kind of like, have you been surprised by the options that are available to you? Absolutely. The GPT-3 model and its descendant, the Dolly, let's, let's focus on the Dolly for okay. the moment. Uh, when you're creating an image, it's fascinating in that you uh, can tweak it and have it change what the image will be based on the adjectives and the descriptions. Right. So all of, you know, I went to school, I was an engineering major, I was also... Allegedly. Allegedly. I was also good at English, but I knew I could never really use English right. for any purpose. But now English majors are at a great advantage <laughs> in terms of using some of yeah. these... Uh, new AI models because they've been trained using English descriptions mm. of these images mm. that have been created. Mm. Uh, so for example, I might say, uh, show me a picture of two middle-aged men eating chili in a cabin and do it in an impressionistic style mm. or do it as a woodcut using three colors and then the three colors might be blue, orange, and black. Right. And it will give you something. <clears throat> and this is some of the most fun parts about uh, Dali mm. and the other image generative AIs that are out there. They will give you something, but sometimes it's not what you expect. Right. Uh, for example, we were playing at the time we were uh, talking about this for the first time. We were playing a board game. Mm -hmm. And I said, okay, give me a board game. Show me a picture of a board game where the players roll dice in order to uh, breed cute kittens. <laughs> and I looked at this picture, right? Because, you know, we're both enthusiasts. We both love to play board games. Mm -hmm. uh, and I looked at this picture and it had done it. And it had given me a picture and you look at the board game and go, yeah, that does look like a board game. Yeah. But it can still at this level, I mean, this is pretty new technology it can still get confused and the confusing items can be the most delightful things about it uh, because it had little figurines of cute kittens. Right. It also had dice. But if you looked carefully, the dice and the cute kittens were sometimes one in the same. Right. The cute kittens would be slightly boxy or the dice might have little whiskers. Right. So you look at it and realize, oh, okay, it's kind of confabulating mm -hmm. all of these different things together. Why is that? You know, where is that coming from? And it's noise in the software. It's a bug, I guess you would say. But isn't it also a feature? I mean, if you were to think of it as writing a story, and we'll talk about the story writing equivalent uh, foundational AI in a minute, 
But if you think of writing a story with a picture, uh, this could be something that could be developed to add to the mood or add to the um, add to the ambiance of the image itself. Right. It as you were reminding, I completely forgot about that. But as you reminded me, it would be a lot like me talking to my I don't know two or three year old and right. saying, giving them that same instruction. Presuming they understood what a board game was and right. what kittens were or whatever and trying to turn them loose on it. And um, uh, that may be, you know, that may not be far from, in fact, you wouldn't even have to tell them, just in their imagination, they would come up with, you know, they see your parents playing, you know, they love kittens, they see your parents playing a board game and they, you know, they create kitten dice and whatever they do is really interesting. I want to come back to something you said earlier about English majors, is is the focus of the programs today primarily in English, or are they the language is universal or um, unknown? That's a great question. It's uh, there are a wide variety of languages that are supported. Uh, when you look at GPT three, GPT three was uh, the first foundational AI that I used, and it was made to take text. And you can think of one of the things it would do is to take for every token in that text, it might be a word, it might be part of a word. Uh, like if the word was strongest, then strong might be a token within that. And find what words naturally occur in text near to or adjacent to the token you're evaluating. Mm. So that if someone were to start a sentence, right, the strongest man in the world is, mm -hmm. then it might, you could ask the AI, to keep building from that and complete that sentence or tell a joke about the strongest man in the world or write an entire essay right. about the strongest man in the world based on adjacency rules and not and also the text around it that might have judgmental things like here's a funny joke or uh, this doesn't make any sense or that sort of thing. Right. So when you look at that, it was trained on, and I looked this up after the last time we talked, it was mm. trained on about 45 terabytes of text or roughly 12 million web pages. Mm -hmm. um, I have to do a caveat on that though. Okay. I didn't quite find the right number, so I asked GPT-3 itself, <laughs> how many, and this is what it told me, but right. we'll get back to the right. trustworthiness right. issue in a moment. Right. But it was trained on this text, um, and the text occurs in a lot of different languages. But one of the languages that GPT-3 has been optimized around, and this will recur in my own life, mm -hmm. is Python. Oh. So you could take a text file. So a computer language. A computer a specific language. specific computer language. Exactly right. Yeah. It's one of the most common computer languages, great applications for data science, which is where I encountered it, but a lot of other applications as well. Right. And if you're familiar with programming, you can write comments for computer programs. Well, what if you just wrote the comments? Here's what this code block does. Here's what this code block does. And then you fed those comments, the comments alone, no code, into GPT-3. <clears throat> it will create a Python program around those comments. Here's the code blocks that occur in the code that we've scraped. Um, I'm assuming it's from GitHub, but you know it could be from all sorts of things. Right. Uh, here is the code blocks that occur near comments like this. And... What, do exactly what you want to do. Is it going to pick, you know, if you've done any coding, was it going to pick all the different uh, uh, options within each library that you're using? My luck has been kind of uh, hit and miss, 
But if nothing else, it's a fascinating look into what the future of coding might be, in addition to other tasks like translation and uh, generating text, things like chatbots, which is one of the applications that the company has released very recently. Uh, and that kind of brings us back to one of the most important things about foundational models of AI. And that's the fact that they can do more than one thing. Uh, when I started studying, and we'll get back to this in a minute, I assume, when I started studying data science, one of the big areas within it, one of the most interesting areas, is machine learning, um, which is a subset of artificial intelligence. When uh, we're going to come back, we're going to dive into your specific journey in data science. But what? Give me a point of reference. Is this five years ago, forty years ago? Were covered wagons on the Oregon Trail? How long ago was this? I remember that time, but <laughs> I started. Um, I started my post-retirement study of this sort of thing uh, in 2018 or 2019. Okay, so within the less than a decade. Correct. Okay. Right, and I've been focused all around Python. That's right. sort of my. That's sort of been my door into this sort of right. thing. Uh, and one of the things that the artificial intelligence, the machine learning that I learned on, you know, way, way back in 2019 and 2020, is that it's fantastic at doing what you teach it to do. In other words, if you want to recognize letters, so you handwrite an A, you handwrite an E, and you want the uh, image to, you want it to be able to read the image, the text that might be in that image, well, you can train it using the methods that I learned in class. In fact, mm -hmm. that was a class project. Mm -hmm. And you'll end up with, in this case, we used a neural network. You'll end up with a neural network that can do that fairly reliably. Mm -hmm. uh, it might be a little sensitive to whether you use a different kind of pen or paper. It might not be great at recognizing printed text based on its handwriting text, learning, whatever, but it will be good at what it's been trained for. Mm -hmm. If you ask it to do something it's not been trained for, garbage. Right. Right. Can you let me ask you this? Um, I was we talked to um, we've talked to a number of people that deal with AI and robotics, right? And one of the things that they say it's really interesting that they discovered they all discover. I train this machine uh, using, you know, depending upon who I talk to, they will either some combination of machine learning AI, or or they may toss out one or both of those terms. They will consider. AI is machine learning or machine learning is AI and whatever. And this machine, and they test it and they get it to do, I don't know, a thousand tasks, like a, a credible array of tasks. They take it in the field and they say, go. Hmm. And it moves two feet and stops. Right. It cannot, and it can't do anything else. I'm like, what's going on? We, we tested for everything, but you did it in a white room. Right. And it has no idea how to do anything if it's not in a white room. It, it has no concept of sky or different colors or a different background. So when you're talking about this training, is there something that's analogous to that? Is it or or is it um, that's that's an order of magnitude different than no, what you're describing? It's it's right on point. Okay. It's exactly on point because uh, when you are training these neural networks, you don't know how it's quote figured out the solution. You don't know what it's looking for exactly. It can't tell you, right? right? Let me give you an example. Suppose you're training an AI to recognize street signs. So you go out, you take pictures of stop signs, yield signs, you take all of these pictures. Uh, then you come back and you're about to do your training and you notice, hey, we forgot to take pictures of no parking signs. You go back out, you take pictures of no parking signs, 
you train up all of your uh, AI to recognize these signs, it gets very good uh, at recognizing all of these signs. Then you take it out one day and you start pointing your camera at different uh, signs and every sign is coming back as a no parking sign. Well, eventually you figure out, okay, when you went back out to get the no parking signs, it was a sunny day. Mm. And what the AI has learned to identify no parking signs as is based on the sunniness or the brightness of the image. Right. Uh, and there are a lot of methodologies. We're very good at that. I mean, for the short period of time that we've been doing this, uh, programmers in science have gotten pretty good at identifying these sorts of things. But it does sort of give you an idea that when we talk about these AIs, we're talking about something that can't tell you necessarily what's going on, mm -hmm. but also something that can be very limited in purpose. That was, you know, then. Mm -hmm. But now, when we start looking at things like GPT-3... Now, when we, you say now, are we talking just in this three-year time span or yeah. in a much... Okay. Well, uh, okay, this was in the works and some of the earlier models, GPT-2, earlier models were released at that time. Which, by the way, what does GPT stand for? Do you remember? Uh, something about... Uh, you would ask me that. Yeah, uh, I'll look it up. You go ahead and answer your question. I'll look I it up real quick. I believe the T is text. Okay. Um, and the G might be general P... Uh, I don't know, please. In any case, um, <laughs> the key though is that the difference between what I've been talking about in terms of these neural networks for machine learning and the kind of foundational models that we're looking at is first size. Uh, the model that generates text is 175 billion tunable parameters to recognize or to generate text. The fallout of that is that it can now do, a lot of these models can do multiple downstream tasks. Mm. So the model that does translation can also be the model that makes up a joke or can also be the model that creates a Python program. So you're starting to get into a much broader area. You can tune the model mm -hmm. for a variety of purposes. And that's what the uh, companies that make these models uh, – other than just being insanely cool and fun to play with, right. that's why these models are being created so that they can be used, for example, if you uh, do an online chat mm. with a uh, home improvement company and you want to find the right size of pipe <clears throat> to use for this or plumbing fixture or whatever, right. or if you're calling up to complain about something, you don't <clears throat> want poor human beings to be inflicted with this sort of thing. Right. Uh, they're not very good at it, for one thing. So you can have these interactive text bots do a much better job of uh, figuring out what's going on and even empower them in some cases to remedy situations where they need to be remedied. Mm. Like direct you to an aisle or uh, order exactly. something on your behalf or right. whatever. Or yeah. say, you know, if what you're doing, maybe you should come in and talk to somebody. What you're doing doesn't make sense. But um, there are some... There are some caveats around that. Hmm. Um, some, for example, uh, I've played a lot with creating text, mm -hmm. right? Another one of my hobbies is writing. Uh, for a long time, I've written um, stories, short stories, science fiction stories. Mm -hmm. So um, I've looked at this in terms of how it generates text and how it answers questions. And the beautiful, endearing thing about these models are that when you ask them to do something, they'll do it. Mm. If you ask them to give you a picture of something, it'll give you a picture of something. Right. It may not have understood what you asked for, but by God, right. it will try. And the text is the same sort of thing. 
you can ask it to give you an essay about uh, how Albert Einstein won the 1976 Olympics. Mm. It will give you an essay about that, even though obviously that never happened. Well, there were no Olympics in 1976. So Yes, exactly. That's why that never happened. David, good, good call on the facts. <laughs> exactly right. By the way, I looked up the name, and it is um, Generative uh, Pre-Trained Transformer. Generative Pre-Trained Transformer is a neural network machine learning, learning model, something or other. There you go. So... Uh, GPT, I doesn't it kind of freak you out? Like, 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 back up for a minute. So, um, actually, I don't want to go into the freak out part okay. yet, but uh, but except for in this one way, because um, as you're talking, I'm like, that sounds so cool, and it's kind of terrifying. But have you yet, when you've messed around with these things, said, why did I come up with that sentence? Like, that's pretty. Not just bizarre, but you're concerning me or, or you know, when you talk to your friends or whatever, hey, give me something to make a picture of. And they, you know, puppies in a blender with a straw and a brow, <laughs> whatever, you know, whatever. Have you ever, have you start found yourself starting to type? You're like, wait a minute, do I need therapy? Do you need therapy? <laughs> what's, what's happening here? Uh, That's been a real problem, actually. <laughs> They've, um, a variety of companies have put out chatbots mm -hmm. and, you know, expose them to the world online. And they've, you know, this will be a great way that we can train our chatbots by getting them to interact with real people. Yeah. The problem with real people is that there they're are real some, people. Yeah, they're real people. <laughs> and, you know, we don't have to still be in junior high school to enjoy pranking things a little bit. Yeah. Uh, and some people are, can be pretty horrible. Right. Uh, and they've trained these uh, chatbots to be racist, to be... Uh, what? Yeah, to be uh, bigoted, uh, angry, sexist, bigoted, whatever. insulting... Uh, right. And in some cases, just in a matter of hours, they've got to be they've got to take the poor chatbot out and kill it <laughs> because because exposure to human beings have caused this to happen. What? However, well, to a certain type of human being, a right? certain type yeah. of human beings. Uh, however, um, when we start looking at some of the text generation models and image generation models out there, it's easy to think of some pretty terrible things that could be done with them. But the companies have learned from their previous uh, experiences. I was looking at uh, the chatbot version of GPT-3, mm -hmm. and it's got a unique, uh, weird name called ChatGPT-3. Mm. Recently released, hard mm -hmm. to get on. It's so overloaded because mm. people are jumping on to play with it. But it's a Q&A type interface. Okay. So you can think of it. Did you uh, say QAnon? No, I did not. Q&A. <laughs> Q&A. <laughs> yeah. I was uh, about to say, we just solved the problem no, for all no, these no, mysteries no. of the universe. Uh, but anyway, Q&A. Q&A. So, um, for example, if you're uh, doing a Google search, uh, you can get something back. I mean, the equivalent of a Google search, asking GPT-3 something. Right. It gives you an answer back. Maybe you don't understand the answer, but you could ask it, you know, I don't understand this. Why, you know, um, how did... Einstein clear, you know, right. a 14-foot pole vault, right? right. Uh, but it can also be used to bring it back to Python programming. You can now get the kind of code back in a Python script and say, I don't understand why, you know, this is a comprehension here instead of a for loop. Right. Or, you know, what is this? You know, this looks like a comprehension, but it's in parentheses. Right. And GPT-3 can come back and say, hey, that's a generator or... It was done for ease of use, but if you don't like it, we can change it, that kind of thing. 
So the short answer is it is kind of creepy. Right. It can be. Uh, but it's um, they're learning a little bit to keep it steered out of the ditches. And for more of a philosophical issue, understanding a little bit of what's under the hood, and I can only claim to understand a little bit, mm. does make it a whole lot easier to be uh, chill about this and to not be worried about it. Uh, it one of the things that when you were talking earlier about um, – being able to use the comments to code. Correct. Is there, so this is sort of, I'm not code, I'm not doing any of the coding underneath to render hues of light or images or whatever. I'm just giving it comments, mm -hmm. whatever these tools are, or this latest tool I'm going in, I'm gathering comments and I'm inserting it in, but it, it reminded me of, kind of where we started in the beginning, which was this idea of if you have command of a language, mm -hmm. whether it's English or whatever, if you have command of a language, so you can get um, elegant in your comments, I would, I would hope that the result is elegant code. Let me tell you what I mean. Mm -hmm. Early days of my IT journey... I probably took like, I don't know, five classes on programming access databases or something, right. whatever. And I've learned the lesson of in the land of the blind, the one-eyed man is king. So I'm surrounded by small business people, and I'm I'm kind of um after you know, after hours running my own little I'll come and make you a little relational database kind of thing. This is a long time ago, obviously, probably twenty something years ago. And um and it worked okay till something didn't work. It broke. And, right. they, and, and they wanted my help, but I couldn't get to it. And they actually called a programmer, to, you know, not some dude who's working after hours to kind of hack through this stuff. And um, that person wrote, you know, this like spectacularly simple, elegant uh, program that did a million times more than I did with my very blocky, clunky one, I didn't have the aptitude or the experience, but really I just, I didn't have the elegance, the, the, you know, the difference between sort of chipping out a stick figure or a circle out of a block of stone, as opposed to somebody who can really come in there. So I imagine, I'm, I'm curious from your perspective, if I've got a command of a language that I'm using to inform these tools to create code or whatever, is that an advantage or does the tool not really care about that. Like it's going to, it's going to fill in the gaps regardless. Uh, those are great questions. Let's kind of uh, talk about the command of issue, the command okay. of language issue first. Right. Um, <laughs> when I started getting, making images with Dolly, <clears throat> I was terrible at it. Right. Mm -hmm. I was reading all of these blog posts about people, you know, who would review the tool and they would show the images they'd created and they were beautiful. I mean, very photorealistic human beings. Uh, just a lot of uh, a lot of things I hadn't thought of. Um, and sometimes they would share what the prompt was, and sometimes they wouldn't share what the prompt was. But in either case, you would look at this and think, "Oh my God, this is great!" Right. And I couldn't do it. Mm. You know, I could do it. I could. It would come back with something. Mm -hmm. It would give me something. But it was never what I saw in my head. Mm -hmm. And in a lot of cases, it would have uh, kind of frustrating errors in it sometimes fascinating errors, and we can get into mm -hmm. that. Uh, but one day I'm playing board games with my friends, 
David and George, mm-hmm. and I'm telling them all about this stuff. And I, uh, while I'm telling them, uh, George, and George, in addition to being great technically, mm-hmm. uh, is extremely gifted verbally. Mm-hmm. And he's, if you ever play a game that involves language with George, you're right. going to learn pretty quick. Right. Well, he gets on there and he starts uh, describing stuff. Like I, I was trying to get two pig, two middle-aged men eating chili, right? And it just looked like crap, right? And then George puts what he put out out there, right? And it's beautiful. It's mm. it's like perfect. It's what I saw in my. He is head. a chili master. He is a chili master. But more importantly, uh, he is using language in the way that cheap that uh, um, Dali mm-hmm. was trained to. Recognize it. My inclination is to say, okay, uh, change the brightness by forty-five percent. Make you know the features more aquiline in this area, or something along those lines. Mm-hmm. And that's not necessarily how things are described online. Mm-hmm. The twelve million pictures that this was trained on were captioned by people like George, mm-hmm. and not really like James Cage. Right. So command of language is very important. Um, and some. What was the uh, other? point that you wanted to get to. Well, the first was, um, I think that was the main point. I don't remember the second one. It was, I'm curious to see, I've always thought as coders, really good coders as puzzle solvers, right? right? They can, they can, my dad became a, came out of the Air Force, became a programmer for IBM. And uh, through this program that they had, he didn't, they, they needed programmers. And so they said, look, instead of going to school, now that you're out of the Air Force, it's the early sixties, um, we, we want you to, you know, we'll put you through our own school, the IBM right. school, whatever. And one of the aptitude tests was your ability to solve puzzles. And for my whole life that I knew him, he would love to take logic games, logic puzzles, whatever, word puzzles, but in particular space, um, space uh, things in space, physical space. Spatial. Um, spatial, that's mm-hmm. what I'm trying to say. Spatial puzzles and, and manipulate them. And I never... You know, I could beat him at cards. I could beat him at a number of things. I could not even get anywhere in his vicinity in terms of solving these riddles, for right. lack of a better word. And it, what you're describing to me is if I have a command of a language so that I can get to the point, which our listeners are probably hoping I get to soon, with the fewest words necessary but all the words necessary to get to the most elegant, efficient outcome uh, without having to know that sort of the underlying components of how do I put the grout together to build this brick on that brick? I can speak it. Mm-hmm. Right? It's almost biblical. I can speak it into existence. I can. We, we see the great stories of magic and mystery. I, Harry Potter, I speak it into whatever. And somehow the, you know, the ethos knows to put this together in a particular way. That's almost what you're describing. It does seem that way. It really does. Um, some of the areas that really intrigue me there uh, are, to go back to your example, when someone comes in and writes a program for you and they really know their stuff, mm-hmm. sometimes you end up with code that's just great. And it may be a year or two before you get to a situation where it's not working the way you want it to or your business has changed and you have to change it. Mm -hmm. So you look at this code and while it's beautiful, it's also incomprehensible Mm -hmm. to you. Mm 
Right. Because a lot of really gifted programmers are not gifted at documenting code. Mm. They hate it. They're not good at it. They're not going to do it unless you put a gun to their head, that sort of thing. Right. Uh, one of the things that I want to play with on these models is can it take a block of code and give me good comments mm. so that I can go back later and understand something or so that it can help me comment my code because it might have an understanding based on the code it's analyzed of the things that people need to know or that gifted programmers have put in there for other gifted programmers and that somebody who uses these tools but not you know, 12 hours a day I use these tools as a smaller subset of what I do in the day, mm -hmm. uh, can gain the benefit from the examples they've done. What do you think the relationship is? And I look, we're going to get into your personal story. Sure, You're sure. not a maker of these tools. You're a consumer of Correct. them. And we're going to speak more about that in a minute. But what do you think the relationship is between the humans teaching the machines mm -hmm in terms of the tool itself and the machine teaching the machine. Like, in the, it sounds like in the beginning, the humans saying, no, 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 this is a no parking. This is a B. This is the number nine. This is, you know, this is bacon, whatever. And at some point, the machine, once it learns those things, tells the next machine down the line, because you don't want the humans telling all the machines, tells the next machine, okay, I've learned this is a B, you know, here's the list. And, and here's various examples of that. And then they bring some set back to the humans and say, hey, I've guessed that all these things are the number nine. Do you agree? 85% of the time I agree. These others here I disagree with. As you're describing these tools and the, and the things necessary, how, how, how much are humans telling these, teaching these things? And how much do you think it's the machine? At what point does the machine get to pick up and say, hey, I got this, people. Uh, I'm gonna, now I'm going to do the rest of the teaching here. I got it from here, the heavy lifting. Now we're just nuancing on a theme, and I, and I can do that. Have you given that any thought at all? It's interesting because Dolly was actually tested because, you know, training starts to become testing at a certain point. Right. Dolly was actually tested using a different AI they created. Uh, using, uh, I, I forget the exact number, but I believe it was over a million paired images and said, okay, write captions for these and now we're going to figure out if you're writing captions in a way that people can guess which picture the caption was written for. Mm. Um, it's, uh, it's just entirely natural for people dealing in data science to use programmatic tools to enhance what would have been done by hand. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's data cleaning, maybe it's creating data sets, maybe it's uh, continuing that further. To bring it back to something that you and I know a little more about, mm -hmm. uh, board games. Mm -hmm. If you wanted to write an AI that would play a game that you've created, uh, you could train that AI and you could have an, an, another AI uh, playing against it. And they're actually training each other as they try to win the game. Hmm. So it's, uh, it is something that lends itself to programmatic or artificial intelligence tools as well. Yeah, I sometimes feel like that in playing games with you. James A.I. Cage is handing <laughs> me my know. tokus once again. So look, we, so we started on these tools. We're going to come back and spend some more time on this and other things. But let's can we pause and back up? I want to come back to um, young... James Cage, bright-eyed, bushy-tail, leaving high school and setting off on your adventure. How can you um, 
describe to us what that path was like before you got here in this podcast studio, kind of how did you end up interested in data science and what's your journey all the way up to this spot? Okay. Um, basically my career and I'm retired now, so I'll, right. I'll talk about my career, kind of showing this off, career keep going. in the past tense. Right. Uh, my career was in industrial process control. I went to Georgia Tech in the mm -hmm. year of our Lord, 1800, I'm sorry, 1983, mm -hmm. uh, covered wagons, et cetera, and took my first data science class. I believe it was in the fall of 83. It might have been in winter of 84. Mm -hmm. uh, but my focus wasn't in data science. Uh, it was more in electrical engineering and later computer integrated manufacturing. So I was doing uh, all very exciting, crowd thrilling topics right, in the year. Yeah, back in those <laughs> days in particular. Uh, and then I became involved in process control. I've uh, I've uh, been very interested in your home automation blog posts. I'm mm -hmm. sorry, not blog posts, but uh, uh, podcasts. Right. Uh, I've been very interested in those because the company I worked for would automate refineries. We'd automate chemical plants, but another division also helped automate homes. Mm. It's not something that's new. Mm -hmm. The thermostat right. is the original home automation, and sure. that was in the 1800s. Right. Um, so I worked with this company, and one of the reasons I chose it is because it was a chance to actually manipulate the real world. It was a chance to do something that had a tangible physical output. Right. Uh, that was extremely rewarding to me. Because if you look at what wealth is, we're taking stuff that you really don't want and turning it into a finished product that might make life easier or might make life possible. And the better you do it, mm -hmm. the less energy you use and the less waste there's going to be mm -hmm. because wasted energy and wasted product are losses. Right. And we want to do as much as we can with right. what we have. However, if you're automating a refinery and you make a mistake, then it's entirely possible that that refinery will relocate itself from Texas to the moon, <laughs> and there is no oil on right. the moon. Right. You can't make oil, you know, can't right. refine crude on the moon. Right. Well, uh, certainly not with that attitude. Yeah, but. not with that attitude. Thank you. We should have had more people with you. <laughs> uh, but so that kind of lends itself to we're going to do everything we can, but we're going to do it in the safest possible way. Right. Um, which means we're going to use technology that's five years old, 10 years old, or if it's working, 30 or 40 years old. Right. True story, uh, one of the networks that um, was in place when I came along, still in place, um, probably is still out there somewhere, instead of using wires to communicate a digital signal, would have pipes communicating signals using air pressure. Mm. So that kind of gives you an idea of the kind of ruggedness and level of uh, backwards compatibility mm -hmm. that was very important in that industry. Mm -hmm. I took a sabbatical, and in my industry, sabbaticals aren't paid by the company. You mm -hmm. just basically you know, suck it up through savings. Right. But I took a sabbatical in 2013 because I wanted to see the cutting edge stuff, the stuff that my industry hadn't traditionally played in. Mm -hmm. One of the best years. Mm. The, of any professional sort of thing I did. Mm. I went to uh, South by Southwest. Of course, I did went there for the tech stuff, but I enjoyed the movie stuff as well. Right. Um, I uh, did a lot of research and things on my own. And when I got back into the industry, uh, th stuff that I had thought would be 
never I would never see on the job in that industry, uh, came up almost immediately. I looked into things like cryptocurrency, mm -hmm. which is based on hashing of mm -hmm. data. Mm -hmm. I won't go into what that is, but it's mm -hmm. uh, a way to ensure that what you are looking at in a digital file is mm -hmm. the exact to the digit uh, duplicate of what was sent to you mm -hmm. so that nothing can be spoofed or modified. Right. And I used hashing right away in setting up a secure development environment in the nuclear industry. Hmm. Um, and I really loved that. And uh, I worked for another year in process control. Um, and I found that my experience in the sabbatical, that kind of thing, was very rewarding to me. Mm. And I had just come to the time at 49 in my mm -hmm. life where it was uh, time to focus on some other things. Mm -hmm. So I retired. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, a mutual friend of ours says that in retirement, you need to have three things right. to occupy yourself. In some cases, it might be your grandkids. It might be a side business. It might be, uh, you know, what have you. One of the things for me was to spend time with my friends mm -hmm. and to make new friends, which mm -hmm. is very difficult when you're in your 50s. Mm -hmm. Another thing was programming because I felt like it would exercise that part of my brain that enjoys puzzles and enjoys games. But it also gives me a way to make something that endures, something I can use every day, something I can have pride in, in the same way that I felt when I was uh, helping make gasoline or cookies or chemicals in the industrial control industry. Mm -hmm. So the three things, one of them was relationships, sure. right? The other was intellectual stimulation. What's the third? The third is still uh, almost in progress. I've done some writing. I've done some uh, other things. I try to eat better and get more exercise than I did on the job. Right. But that's more foundational. That's more of a way of turning your brain off, which is important. You've right. got to do that every now and then. But I'm still kind of looking for something to fill that third slot. Hmm. So how do you, so you go through data science, you go through um, tech, mm -hmm. you get into this industry, you, you manage to put together a life where, um, uh, unusually, I didn't hear a mention of a startup or anything in there that you sold for some ridiculous amount of money to Yahoo or whoever, um, but you, you, you manage to accrue enough to say, all right, I, you know, within my my lifestyle, I've, I've got enough to make it for a while anyway, mm -hmm. um, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to step out of this. And so you found a way to engage with human beings, and you found a way to engage to stimulate your mind. How, why, I guess what I'm wondering is, so you've stepped out of industry, why come back into this creative, you and I have talked offline about this, where you began to get into programming again. Um, we've talked about Python a number of times, which we said is a programming language. What about that world attracted you as opposed to getting into, you know, creating something with your hands? Like we've talked offline and, you know, I find you very much renaissance where you're, I'm getting into 3D printing and mm -hmm. um, I'm learning how to create things, you know, with, um, with these tools. Hey, I'm looking into drones or whatever. What is it do you think about, the world of programming that's ca captured your imagination so much? Because there's not necessarily a, a direct correlation between programming and data science. Those aren't necessarily connected. It's a great question because when you look at uh, what data science is, uh, the analysis, the visualization, uh, more to the recent things, machine learning, artificial intelligence, all of these things that come about through um, 
data science in particular things like data mining. Mm -hmm. uh, these are things that I very seldom did a lot with during my career. Mm -hmm. The programming that I might have done in my career would be, again, because you're looking at extremely rugged type computers using technology that may not be the latest and greatest thing and probably shouldn't be, mm -hmm. uh, would be much more simple using industrial tools like function blocks or uh, uh, programmable logic controllers using ladder logic, that mm -hmm. kind of thing. But when I retired, I wanted to understand a little bit more about the world mm -hmm. and data. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the most important commodity right. is uh, a key to that. The first class I took uh, when I started my online education mm -hmm. journey wasn't even a programming class or a data science class. I took a class in statistics. And in fact, I took a AP prep class hmm. in statistics. Right. Uh, and from there, you start looking at, well, what do you want to do and what tools are going to be needed? And... Uh, Python, in particular, fit every category. There are data science analysis tools like R, great tool. I couldn't get that at all. Mm -hmm. uh, but if you look at Python, not only can you do it for all of these areas in data science, the machine learning, the visualization, everything else, but it also might apply if you're doing backends to uh, uh, web servers or you just name it. Mm -hmm. um, you can use it for almost anything. In mm -hmm. fact, all of the... Uh, AIs that we've talked about, GPT-3, Dolly, the ones we haven't talked about, mm -hmm. have APIs that will read right into Python, and now you can manipulate those programmatically. Mm. So I started taking Python classes uh, related to data science. So for the last several years, I've probably taken, done about 1,000 hours of classes, and um, not credit hours, but mm -hmm. hours spent doing projects and mm -hmm. being in class, mm -hmm. and earned three certificates in uh, data science from IBM or um, programming for artificial intelligence for Harvard, mm -hmm. all of which are available at low cost or no cost online. Mm -hmm. And uh, they start to overlap and they start to build a foundation that help, un help me make a little sense, mm -hmm. maybe not a perfect understanding, not an expertise, certainly, mm -hmm. but make more sense of the kind of world we're living in. So I want to make sure I've got this right. You've managed to achieve some form of financial security so that you could retire early. And once you've done that, you've got your feet up in the lazy boy and you say, you know what I should do in my retirement? I should take an AP statistics class. That's going to lead me to fulfillment. Yeah, it's, uh, I know that it's like unbearably sexy. It's like, <laughs> it's like being the civilian equivalent of James Bond or something. <laughs> but yes, that's where my mind went was yeah. uh, an AP class and stats. Yes, maybe James Pond, but I don't know about James Bond. Maybe James Possibly. Cage. Could be. Um, so are there any tools we've, you know, and this isn't a, this isn't a forum for Dolly. It's just the sure. tools that I, I, I've just found fascinating are there any of these other tools that you've experimented with? And actually, so sort of a two-part question. And when is it that they just start replacing the artisans or the whatever? So so are, are there other tools out there that you're familiar with, that you've played with, or that you've developed in maybe not generating pictures, maybe generating text or or whatever? You know, they're, they're one of these creative forms that, you know, look, we... I have a good friend who's an expert in writing uh, press releases. Like mm -hmm. there is a spectacular art on what you imply, what you say, what you don't say, how it's target. Like I wouldn't have thought it was a big deal, but I've learned it is a 
amazing art. What happens when the tool, you know, we talk all the time about tools replacing drivers with autonomous vehicles or whatever. What happens when they start pushing creative, hard-won, skilled people out of these things, or is that even a thing? So what are the tools, if any, that we haven't talked about? Even if it's not a specific name, it's just conceptually you're familiar with tools being developed or that you've experimented with. Um, and if not, or in addition to that, when do they start, you know, when do, when do kids that have to create a picture or whatever for art class or for photography class begin making these things with these tools and just showing up saying, hey, this is my thing, and it's not their thing. Their tablet did it. Uh, yesterday. Okay. To answer the last question first, yesterday. Yeah. Okay. There have already been some scandals, right? Uh, perhaps manufactured scandals, about people winning art contests with uh, pictures <clears throat> generated by a generative AI. Right. Uh, and it does worry me. I have a cousin... Uh, who's right at the age of getting ready to go to college. And I worry about uh, him studying art and getting out and having uh, different career opportunities than what he had planned for. Mm. Art's not going to go away. And when these tools are used, knowing how to use them is going to make you more effective. Uh, I think of it this way. I think that uh, a lot of these tools will be used in conjunction with human expertise and knowledge more so than being used flatly on their own. I give an example of me and George. George was much better right away mm. at producing great images using Dali than I was, probably mm -hmm. better than I am now, despite mm -hmm. the time I've put into it. Mm -hmm. Another example, um, earlier I was looking at a series of blog posts. You know, I'd, I'd looked at all these things, I'd played with all this AI, and for a while I didn't do much with it because it was interesting, but was it ready for prime time? Mm -hmm. I had it in my head that it would be a replacement for, uh, a robot doing something for me. But I was recently faced with a, a series of five blog posts, and I was going to print them out and highlight the passages that I needed for what I was going to do. But on a hunch, I took them and fed them into GPT-3 and asked GPT-3 to summarize them for me. Mm. Uh, you can give it a little bit of randomness so that uh, it will pick different paths down its uh, iteration, uh, down its uh, knowledge system mm -hmm. and give you different summaries, maybe some longer, uh, shorter, uh, picking different things to look at. But I did a couple of, of um, summaries of these blog posts and then knitted them together into uh, a single page with a few edits based on, okay, it missed this, but I added in there. Mm -hmm. In much less time, I ended up with a one-page summary that put all of what I needed for my purposes, not for the author's purposes or for his intended audience, but for my purposes, into a place where I could use it and refer to it rapidly. Um, the other thought around that is, uh, if you go and read a blog post or an article about Dali, you're going to see some pretty amazing images. Mm. What you're not going to see is all the images that were wrong, right. that didn't work correctly, that have... Uh, dice that look like kittens and kittens that look like dice. Right. Um, I asked uh, Dolly to give me an image of, accountant, of an accountant fighting a bear. And again, because I don't have George's skill with the language, it looked terrible. But what I really found fascinating about it was that the accountants, some of them had bear-like features, 
Right. Dolly uh, was the the AI. You know, again, it's predicting, it's building pixels based on the prediction of what pixels will be around it, given the context that you've created. Right. Uh, sometimes people would have like snouts. It was just the strangest sort of thing. Well, that could also just be accountants. It could just be accountants. I uh, don't know for sure. Right. Uh, but yes, but knowing the knowing the systems and how they work, combined with having skills and training in the areas that uh, help you manipulate them, and in this mm -hmm. case, the English language or the language that you use, mm -hmm. uh, is going to give you better results. And whether that AI is about dealing with customers and maybe you're training that AI or testing that AI or, or uh, using that AI to assist you so that one person is dealing with 20 customers simultaneously instead of just one or two at a time. Mm -hmm. Uh, having knowledge is going to get more out of that. Mm. Will it replace people? There's a lot of debate about that. Now we start getting into economics. I, my uh, perhaps optimistic inclination is to believe that we will have possibly fewer people working in there, but the main effect will be having much more high-quality uh, chatbots, much more high-quality images or more appropriate images or images in cases where no one would have bothered to do an image mm -hmm. than we would have otherwise. Well, there can be no question that will replace people in the same way that the printing press replaced people or the asphalt road paver replaced people, like the, for sure. That I had Martin Ford on here who wrote a book, a series of books. Um, two, he's probably most well, for, well known for Rise of the Robots, A Rule of the Robots. Mm -hmm. And... Um, well, he's generally an engineering optimist. He's a little bit, I wouldn't call him a pessimist. I don't want to put words in his mouth, but he thinks that the economists underestimate the impact of these tools are going to have for human beings, in particular in the West, you know, probably not going to have much of an impact in an undeveloped world in terms of displacing jobs. Uh, not a lot of ditch diggers are going to get uh, bounced out of their position anytime soon. Well, the the counter to that, and again, I'm not saying one's right and one's wrong because these examples come from fact and they've happened in both ways and they could happen in both ways going forward. But I would say the counter to that would be weavers and clothes makers. Mm -hmm. Prior to the Industrial Revolution, you had a pair of clothes. <laughs> right. You might be buried in it. You know, right. you might wear it forever, right? right? And the hygiene implications are exactly what you would think of. Right. After the Industrial Revolution got started and in we were using machines to weave and knit and do these other things instead of people, mm -hmm. uh, instead of having one pair of clothes, you might actually have two pairs of clothes. You might right. have underwear. Right. Uh, or you may have dozens of pairs of right. clothes. And I don't know about And it you. was less expensive and it was higher quality. Right. And the interesting thing and was- employment went up. Yeah, we saw that in tomato picking. I'm not going to belabor it here, but they invented a uh, tomato picker. Mm -hmm. And the long and the short of it was, yes, they displaced – a few things happened. One, they had to make a – they had to develop a much firmer tomato because an automatic, automatic tomato right. picker couldn't get a soft tomato. And so you lost flavor and it wasn't inedible. It was just firmer and a little bit whatever. So they developed a new tomato. These things could – pick the daylights out of these tomatoes. Like now all of a sudden more and more farms popped up to do the tomatoes. The people who were in the field doing the tomato picking got 
bumped into the cannery and other areas. I mean, there's a big study. There's been a number of things on this. And I, I'm sure it's not all positive, but it was right. the majority was positive. So they, they got more money. Were there more people per acre? No, there were much less per acre. Were there more people in the industry? Much more. And now tomatoes became very inexpensive and could be bought and consumed all year long for a variety of reasons, not the least of which is they're inexpensive and widely available and people would love to have them. Sure. And then it created boutique tomato farms that are only handpicked because they're this soft, tender kind. And so for if your heart is set on picking tomatoes, then you can go for a higher wage because there's very few of you and go work at the boutique tomato farm and pick them. Um, there aren't all of those results that are that positive. Right. But I, I guess what I'm saying, and we've seen this with CAD, we've seen this with other things. H hard to guess, but I, I want to get to a slightly different philosophical question, if you don't mind. Sure. Um, I've listened to a few people talk about when... Um, when did plagiarism really become a thing? Have you heard this conversation before? No. When plagiarism? So if you, as the, as I understand the story in ancient Greece, which is really when we go back to sort of a society, a philosophy was honored by a society, right? Not, not necessarily that you agreed or disagreed, but that you were intellectual and you were learned and you were, you were these great teachers and you come out and teach, you know, your students or whatever. And probably the greatest form of flattery, certainly one of the greatest forms of flattery, was if you took Socrates or Plato or Aristotle or whoever, fill in the blank, their ideas, internalized them, and then went into the world. And they didn't care if they, you presented them as your own. They did not care. They were able to, uh, they felt like, look, I'm living on through my students, and that was perpetuated, and on and on and on. And that was the case until whenever the uh, public access to the printing press, not just the invention, but it actually became part of government and whatever. And then all of a sudden, it became a really big deal. So for whatever that time was, 1,500 years, 2,000 years, no such thing as plagiarism, really. But then when the printing press came out, it was. Do you Are you familiar with why all of a sudden it was a big deal? I assume it had to do with livelihood. You could monetize it. Right. I could take your thoughts, your ideas, I could monetize them, and I could sell them. Because it's easy, right? Um, we really didn't get into uh, a lot of... There was some plagiarism in school, but there wasn't really, even at the high school level, that big of a deal um, until the personal computer came by or the word processor where I could just copy and paste. And so I could very easily, very simply take... Encyclopedia Britannica or some other, you know, whatever, some source, and just publish it as my own. And all of a sudden, so I'm curious with the tools like this, um, how does that impact going forward if I, and maybe it's not plagiarism, but it, I mean, the idea is it's not just monetization, but as it relates to education, it is, did you learn something? Right, I just I don't want to just read your essay. I want to see that you can form a thought and create an essay. You can space it correctly. You can punct, you know, bring correct punctuation. You can form a coherent thought. You follow story form or whatever. But if I'm just telling my tool, hey, tablet, 
Make me a, I need a, th- a 400 count or whatever it is, a 180 word count, this and this. It needs to cover these things. It needs to have this structure, right? And I'm just reading it from the syllabus. Go. <laughs> and, I, and, it, and it can't be anything that you can uh, pull from a database that's on the web or whatever. So make it about the fourth leaf in a four leaf clover and its lonely journey and how it's so unusual because the other three leaves are always or whatever right so you do this thing and then the tool makes the thing for you how do i do i have if i'm a teacher or an educator do i have my tool evaluate your presentation to see if there's enough mess and disorder that a human made it or whatever like what do you think the impact of these tools to uh teaching people to learn and having them demonstrate their skill through you know, writing or, you know, creating or whatever. Is there a real risk there or is it much ado about nothing? A couple of uh, areas there. In terms of risk, what these are creating, in my opinion, and uh, is that they aren't, that what these things are creating, creating may be the wrong word, what they're putting together is based on their training but isn't their training. So if I do an image with GPT, I'm sorry, if I do an image with DALI, it's not something that it copied from the web. It's something that it put together um, with in, using its Inspired algorithm. by you, but well, drawing right. from its experience and its database. Which right? is what an artist would do, necessarily, right. in some ways, although we can get to that. Right. Uh, I, I don't think that uh, even some of the recent efforts, for example, in terms of generating images, one of the prompts that have been used recently to great effect was an artist's name. Do this picture in the style of this artist. Mm-hmm. And if it's Van Gogh, it's okay, Van Gogh's dead, he can't sue you. Right. But if it's a living artist, that starts to get a little thornier and one of the image generation sites has now, it will now ignore that prompt mm-hmm. if you try to prompt it to do it in the style of this particular living artist. Right. I'm not so worried, uh, I'm not so Concerned about that, uh, or rather, I don't think there's a great uh, copyright issue around that. Because your your summary of why copyright exists is a great summary. It's there to protect a creator and to give them a chance to uh, to uh, benefit from what they've created. But it was never intended to be a perpetual benefit. Mm. We've extended copyright in this country. I could go on. That's one of my soapboxes. We've extended copyright to this country in this country or in this world to the point where it's actually leading to the destruction of things like books and recordings where nobody bothers to preserve them or publish them because if they publish them, uh, because it's almost impossible to figure out who would own the copyright and if they mm. publish them, it's only lawsuit bait. Right. Um, to the other point though, which is uh, something I think that's extremely important, we start talking about these foundational AIs in the realm of education, then I think you have to look at the possibilities. The, uh, in the day, even before I was born, mm-hmm. they had this thing called the Socratic method for teaching. Mm. And as I understand it, the Socratic method was when one person would talk to another person and they would impart knowledge interactively. In other words, the expert would be asking questions, would be, you know, what do you think this is? They would encourage when you started to get on the right path. They would discourage you from the wrong path. But it's not possible to do that on a very large scale. That's why in colleges you have uh, 
gifted uh, professors teaching to a class of 100 people. Mm. David Milan, teaching CS50 at Harvard, has an audience of three and a half million people mm. for his lectures and for his uh, teaching, and he should. He's mm -hmm. a genius at mm -hmm. what he does. Um, but if you were to look at what GPT-3 could add to that, think about what we talked about earlier, chat GPT-3, where you could actually interact and talk with GPT-3 to ask it questions and interrogate it to understand, to gain more understanding of what its replies are. Now turn that around. Mm. What if GPT-3 could be talking to a student and asking them questions and, and interrogating or dr uh, drilling in to find where the student is having problems because that's, in my experience in education, online, in person, um, elementary school, college, ongoing education in the corporate world, knowing when somebody has lost the thread of the conversation is super critical and very rarely done very well. Hmm. A gifted teacher can look at somebody and kind of get an idea when they fall asleep. Uh, and I've taught some classes, so yeah, I, I, I right. gained a little bit of that ability. But the ability to wear a, you know, in an audience of 30 people doing a corporate education event or whatever, you could have 30 conversations going on and find the guy or find the person who's missed something or build on that insight and reward it and highlight it and help cement that insight when the student has it in their mind could be a real game changer. I'm not concerned about the grading uh, effort because mm -hmm. you've already alluded to a lot of the solutions that will exist there. Using some of these artificial intelligence tools to detect plagiarism is a done deal. Mm -hmm. That's old tech, right? right? Using some of these artificial intelligence tools to evaluate what you write. Now, maybe you run off and write something with your own AI. Um, and I think it is going to be possible for an AI to recognize what an AI has written. And it'll also be possible to tune AIs to write stuff that other AIs can't recognize. Right. There might be something of an arms race there, but you can get so much more from just talking to the student in real time. Mm -hmm. And between the uh, image technologies, between the text technologies, I just can't believe for a moment that uh, at some point it's just going to be easier for the that damn stupid kid to just learn something as opposed to figuring out how to cheat. Yeah. Pardon me, I, I, I said kid. Uh, yeah. I, you know, one of the things that I, it comes up sometimes on this show when I talk to people about future tech, one of the most common ways, um, there are a few really common worlds where future tech is either generated or it's applied. One is space, all of this other kind of stuff. But the other is military application. And it would be interesting to me to see how these tools could be used. You mentioned the word interrogation. Like mm -hmm. if I'm trying to get information and I would prefer not to waterboard people or whatever, can I use a tool to, um, to ask questions and, and then not just my intuition. Like I could have the human there bringing the human intuition but I could also have the machine asking questions, like inspired, depending upon the responses or whatever, to either prompt me to ask the question or they could ask the question, and also to measure um, the response, you know, all the, all the physiological response, heart rate, perspiration, whatever, you know, all these other things, the, the, the facial muscles or all of the various... 
um, components, and, and the tone of the voice, and the and the words used. And are they? Am I seeing a pattern with other words in other responses from other people? Of this is you know whatever. I'm not trying to get too sci-fi, but what inspired me in that is I'm imagining in the future for augmented reality, if I'm a cop and I come on a crime scene and I, you know, the, 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 I'm a detective and the local cop has said, here's what's happened and here's when it's happened or whatever. And I could just see somebody with their tools, you know, almost as their partner. Hey, help me to evaluate the scene. And they're using the camera or whatever to look for patterns of things that are out of place to, uh, correlate, uh, data of what vehicles might have been in the vicinity at the time of the incident, whatever it is, who's making social media posts, who's like all of this other stuff. Uh, maybe uh, it helps me to correlate. These are the six or eight people that we can tell we're in this area. Let's set up a chat bot or a, uh, you know, some sort of a conversation. And I have my AI tools, if not doing the questioning, doing an evaluation as I question them. Like, but then it terrifies me, like, <clears throat> do we want to turn over this agency to tools to do that? I mean, we're having a conversation in the world of technology. Do we really want to arm devices that can take people's life? On the one hand, there's so many friendly fire incidents if I'm out in a combat area where somebody startles me, a, a fellow soldier on my side or a civilian non-combatant or whatever, and I take action because I'm scared and I'm mm -hmm. surprised and I'm frightened or I'm. it's unclear what's going on. And it's tragic, but there's a consequence of that. How great would it be if I had a machine that doesn't get scared, that can react faster than a human being or whatever? And so it doesn't do that. But then I got to arm the machine. And so when it decides, you know what, the right course of action here is to take a human life or whatever. Do we really want to do that? Dr. Wolpe from Emory is in charge of ethics. Uh, ethics talk to me about that. Like, do we really want to give that kind of agency? We're in a way looking to do that with autonomous vehicles to make decisions and mm. whatever. I, I'm wondering if we can't apply these tools. Um, it just feels like it's another part of that conversation to um, maybe not such a dark way, but to but to help us interview who should come to school. You know, who should come to this uh, campus if if we have only a limited number of seats. And in the past, our paradigm for measuring who should be allowed in is some combination of personal interview. I'm thinking of risky business here, uh, you know, SAT and an entrance exam of, you know, whatever. And they, they put sort of this uh, amalgamation together and that's who gets in, which usually is just donor money or whatever. But to have a tool to kind of do that interview and help you to um, confirm, I don't know, I'm rambling, but it just feels like there's... a there's opportunity for great things to be done, but uh, also unintended consequence. That's going to be a gigantic thing, I think, uh, and that's a safe bet because unintended consequence is always a gigantic thing. Uh, I feel, though, that when we look at some of these text-generative AIs, mm -hmm. we start getting into an area perhaps where these big artificial intelligence models, again, they've learned something you know what you wanted them to learn, but you're not sure exactly what they did learn or how they're going to behave. We may start to get into an era where we can ask them questions, or at least we can ask an, a, uh, an intelligence that can look at them and start answering more of our questions about them. Hmm. Because if we have these AI models that can look at the world and look at pictures, 
and answer questions about those or create them. Maybe we'll get to a world where they can do that in some of these other applications of artificial intelligence. You mentioned a little while ago um, Harvard mm -hmm. uh, a few times, and I, I don't believe you've been up in the Cambridge area in the last uh, 10 years living as a student. Did you, did you um, enroll in distance learning, or how, how did you engage in, um, did, you, did you say you took the, uh, the CSF class? I took the uh, CS50 class. CS50. CS50 is basically the Harvard Intro to Computer Science for Freshmen. Okay. It started on campus. And I mean, it's no AP statistics. It's no AP statistics, but uh, it's notable for its extremely uh, high uh, uptake rate among students. It was a very popular class, the most popular class at Harvard. Uh, and in 2012, they started putting it online. Mm -hmm. And of course, there had been online education, and there's still online education. Uh, however, what distinguished them, first of all, the Harvard name, mm -hmm. but also the extremely high production values. They didn't see this as an ancillary sort of thing. They didn't see this as, okay, we already have this product. We'll stick a camera in front of somebody and then put the video online. They saw it more as a chance to change the world of how this is being done. Mm -hmm. And they created classes that are just spectacular. Um, put these online and they're available for free. You can get a certificate, not a verified certificate, but a certificate you've taken these classes for free. Or you can spend, I think it's 150 bucks and get a verified certificate. That's what I've done in these mm -hmm. classes. And they're just fabulous for what they are. I wouldn't say that they're the only model for delivering education. I'm very strong uh, advocate that uh, different people have different ways of learning and we should adapt to that Right. Instead of judging them as being smart or dumb based on how well they fit into what we offer them. Right. Right. Um, you have bad taste because you don't like how I cook my chili. That's that's <laughs> probably not the way it is. I know better. I've never terrible. tasted your chili. That's pretty um, terrible. Do you know Thomas Sowell? Have you ever of heard course. that name? Yes, okay. The Economist. He's, he, the Economist. And one of the things, I mean, one of the things that I found fascinating about him, he was a professor. I mean, his journey, I think, was Harvard, then Columbia, then Chicago, um, University of Chicago uh, for his uh, PhD, if I remember correctly. But very, you know, he's worked for the State Department. He's just really, really, really smart guy. And one of the things, among several things that he talks about is um, we sometimes put kids in schools that they shouldn't be in, which is not to say they shouldn't go to school, like they would crush a state school. And I think he was speaking of his experience as a professor at Cornell, for example, or, or I'm pretty sure it was Cornell, but wherever it was, he's like, look, these are talented, smart kids, but I have the one half of the one half of 1% in front of me, and the course load here is, this is not meant as an insult, we should just recognize not everybody thinks the same or moves at the same pace or whatever. And so if they were to go to, I don't want to name a state school, cough, cough, Auburn, but if they were to go to, for example, actually Auburn's an amazing it's engineering school. school. Yeah. yeah. But if you were to go to a, um, a school, some schools, world-class education, but it's not the same as this one. And so if it was just 1% or 2% different, they might have a different experience as opposed to coming to one of these. But anyway, when you were talking about this with um, Harvard, what caught my imagination was not just the production value and this, but it was, um, you know, this idea of 
continuing education and online education for not just a student there in Cambridge, but to but to make it open to the world. And what's the potentiality of? I know MIT has done something like this with uh, uh, basic chemistry introduction to chemistry. There's kind of a famous story out there of Bill Gates taking a class from uh, Professor uh, Don Sadaway. Very po- I don't know what the production value is, but very very popular class. Very well done. You know, it's amazing when you've got a world-class professor that can take a subject that to me would be very complex. First time I almost got suspended or uh, uh, expelled from school was, uh, I guess they're serious when they say don't pull the dry shower handle in chemistry. You really probably shouldn't do it because it may interfere with the anatomy test right after yours, but that's another topic for another day. But that's a complex subject to me, chemistry. I was never very good in that. And the reputation is, this professor who's so good in this complex subject that could that could um, present it in a way that was engaging and fascinating and all and, and accessible not just in the intellectual content but in the I don't have to I don't have to have afforded an education and gotten into that university I can join it in this other way and have this full rich experience and learn something. And I know in our other conversations that the opportunity for an education system just for you personally like this has been fantastic. It is. Uh, it has been fantastic. And I think that uh, to your point, there is an issue of rationing mm-hmm. now, and particularly rationing of something like Harvard <clears throat> and of all the institutions that are doing their level best, even if it's not a great idea, to try to be like Harvard. Mm. Because again, when we're talking about something that is so neatly optimized around what they do, so beautifully done, so well done, uh, it may not be something that's applicable to everybody. Mm-hmm. And when you have a pressure, when you can when you can discourage 99% of the people that apply mm-hmm. and not take them in, mm-hmm. you're of course going to be able to, although again, the actual facts in terms of alumni and uh, faculty uh, admissions, children of alumni and faculty admissions may change this right. a little bit. But I, I don't really honestly see it that way. Mm. I frankly think that um, we're rationing education and a lot of other personal services in the way that we were rationing underwear mm. prior to the Industrial Revolution. Mm. One of the neat things about these AI models, foundational models and the models that will come about after them, is that they can provide services, not just you know canned tomatoes, but mm-hmm. services in ways that uh, would let a great human being extend their reach and also give them ways to extend that reach in, uh, in a much more personal sort of way. I'm very excited about the idea of being able to constantly engage somebody. Instead of watching a video, engage that person, asking them questions, getting them to do things so that they're exercising their mind during the entirety of the education and you don't get droopy eyelids because you, you know, you're doing something, right? You're being active and the interaction is clear that what you're doing is impacting what's being given to you. Um, I think that the uh, opportunity for that is going to call into question in some ways our educational model. Mm. The educational model we have today, uh, in part because of the history, in large part because of the history, combines teaching with evaluation, Mm. right? 
And if you look at some of these uh, extremely elite schools, first of all, they're good. But second of all, they're evaluating people based on their abilities or their adherence to the model that they provide. And they have a conflict of interest, what an economist I think would call an agency problem, where the same people that you're paying to teach your kid are evaluating how much that kid has learned. Mm. Uh, And that leads to things like grade inflation. It leads to things like being totally unable to compare uh, one college to another college because uh, they're being evaluated in different ways. So what ends up happening is that we start using the cost of a college education uh, as a proxy for the value of that education. Mm. And there are some valiant attempts to uh, roll that back. Places like Purdue or Georgia Tech, I I salute these guys. Mm -hmm. But um, if you were to break that link, suppose the evaluation of how much you've learned could be uh, coming from an AI so that now you could shop where you learn instead of being locked into the college you chose when you were 17. You could learn some things from a tutor, some things from an online class, some things that don't um, aren't amenable to being digitized and provided through an online class. And there are a lot of things like that. Uh, you might learn from a human being or in a conventional classroom environment. You might uh, learn them from different colleges in different co- countries. But now the way you gather that knowledge can be individualized. And what you actually learn, and not just knowledge of English and chemistry and programming, but also knowledge of how to show up to work on time, Mm. how to be persistent, can now be evaluated in a way that's consistent among all colleges. Now parents and children could look and say, hey, for somebody with my interests and my abilities, this college has done, or this uh, teaching route has done a much better job of making making someone employable than this other one has. And now you can have real competition based on output as opposed to competition based on how much I can possibly charge and how many kids I can disappoint by keeping my acceptance number as low as possible. One of the things that we talk a lot about with AI is bias in AI. Mm-hmm. So as you're, um, as you're describing this, the ability for tools like this to, to do the evaluate, one, to do an assessment, where, where would be it's almost like a like a like an advisor. How do I build? You know, what's my goal of education? What is it that I'm trying to do? And have it sort of pick um, where I should get my education and what types and in and in what format. This one should be, you know, if you want to become an expert kayaker, probably not just watching a video on it or a distance learning or whatever. You should probably get in the water with a paddle. Um, so any of these tools, though, it's it's a it's a question and a conundrum that programmers are wrestling with. In, in any way that we apply them because of the bias. We talked, we kind of joked about it earlier. You know, you can get a tool that's racist and sexist and bigoted and whatever, depending upon its inputs, the chatbots sure. or whatever. So how do we make sure, I guess what I'm, the, the pessimist, I'm not a pessimistic person, but the um, the skeptic, that's a better way for me to say it is, the money comes into these things and I want to influence this tool that does the evaluation so that it chooses my, you know, it, it creates an outcome, whether it is directing people in a way that I want or it's evaluating them post-education in a way that I want. One of the criticisms, I think is a reasonable criticism, I'm not, I'm, I'm not knowledgeable enough 
to have a strong opinion, but I'm listening to this discussion, which is we're evaluating some citizens in the United States, and they're naturally going to have a better result, not because they're intellectually more capable, but because of the childhood opportunities that they had growing up, they had more exposure to language skills and nutrition and et cetera, as opposed to this group over here, which has not had that same exposure. And then, so therefore, when you go to do this evaluation to place them, these folks, not because they are less intelligent, but because they've had less opportunity, whatever, that's sort of loosely how the, how the discussion goes. I'm wondering though, then, do we just take that to a different sort of war? We create these tools that have you know, these biases or these things in them, whether it's in the evaluation of where we think is the appropriate place for people to go or in the evaluation upon conclusion of their success. It feels like that's a, you know, an ongoing risk we got to continue to manage against. And do I have a tool measuring? I don't know. It, 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 it starts getting sort of... Are we just pushing the problems around, you know, like pushing noodles on the plate? Or is it uh, much, you know, I'm getting worked up about really a problem that doesn't even exist? Oh, no, you're, you're getting worked up about all the right stuff. Okay. So, Ryu, uh, this is an area where I'm thankful I don't have to solve the problems, but I do have a thought around the solution. Okay, let's hear it. Is that there's not a solution, that we should have a democratic sort of approach to this. There will be inputs and solutions and conflicts based around a lot of different things. And the cultural and racial and gender-based issues are gigantic. Mm-hmm. And fortunately, they're being... Uh, they have a lot of attention on it They right have now. a huge amount of attention, and hopefully it won't go away. Hopefully right. this will be a constraint we operate against. But there will be people whose primary interest in education is, will it get me a good job? Mm-hmm. Nothing wrong with those people. Right. I, based, I based my education in large part on the fact that my technical side of my brain and my interests would get me a better paycheck. Right. And some t- somewhere in the far, far future, in the 2020s, I would be able to have some leisure time based on what I did in the 80s and 90s and right. the 2000s. There's nothing wrong with that, but it's not the only way. Mm. That kind of feedback can be uh, might come from businesses. So a Google or a Microsoft uh, wonderful companies, mm-hmm. uh, or a QTS, mm-hmm. might be uh, using a college degree, which instead of would just be a one-line thing, now might be a much more complex picture of someone who's learned something in order to evaluate, hey, uh, it's it's very important to us that this person gets to work on time, but it's also important to us that they have these skills and these interpersonal skills. Mm-hmm. And someone else might be looking for a different mix. Mm-hmm. They might be looking for a different fingerprint that mm-hmm. fits into their company. Mm-hmm. And the act of doing that not just helps the company pick the best people, um, it also backpropagates in the same way that uh, an artificial intelligence is trained. That backpropagation helps train the education system. But it shouldn't be the only way that we do it. Uh, churches, charities, and even just individual preferences. Mm-hmm. I don't care what mm-hmm. someone's going to think about me. Mm-hmm. I want to study. Um, what's a good example? Be careful. What's a good People example? People you care about might be listening. There are. There's somebody. I remember this from years ago. Someone who just loved algae. They wanted to study algae. They wanted to learn everything about algae. And this whole boom in uh, uh, micro 
biome-based, micro-based micro alternative fuels came around and suddenly made this guy, you know, these people rich and uh, well-known for their industry. Right. But again, it wasn't starting out like that. They just thought algae was the coolest crap on earth. You know what? When it's We're not going to end our podcast on algae, so I'll have another question for you. you. But it, I met this really cool couple out of Austin. Mm-hmm. Um, I got to interview them at the uh, uh, Humans to Mars Summit earlier this year. And they, they're both attorneys, kind of this background, but um, the problem they're solving is uh, how do we capture energy in a way that we can feed it back in the grid, sustainable energy. And so they took this algae thing where they are, there, are, there is algae in the world that is natural photoreceptor, like they absorb and then can transmute naturally the energy of the sun spectacularly powerful um for their size Mm -hmm. so they developed a way to paint with algae so it's this living i'm like that sounds weird and gross so they're working with one of the universities out of mississippi which is i guess one of the best in the world in paint and whatever they're putting this together this is an area that they're working in how do we go to paint? So it just looks like a regular coating on whatever building and protect the building. But it's these things that are absorbing the energy of the sun that can be then tra- over the window or whatever. It's transparent in the case of a window. It's, you know, just on and on. It looks the same, but it's able to do this stuff. And I was like, algae. He's like, I know. I'm a redneck lawyer from <laughs> Texas. And it's, but these are the things when you allow your mind. So what if you're some kid in Shreveport, Louisiana, or in uh, I, I don't know, Moses Lake, Washington, and you want to have access to this stuff, but you can't move to Texas, that's not an option, or or the University of Mississippi, or wherever these things could play. But, but my interests have led me to these things, and so now I'm able to connect. I can get some of my humanities here local, but I can get these other exactly. things at distance and exactly. connect and have this full experience. I have a friend who tutored me in math at Georgia Tech, and just talking to him for an hour uh, was just a revelation. He would just unlock concepts in my head by asking me a few questions. Mm. And if you have an opportunity to learn things like that, that's fantastic. Why right. would I even need to go to class if I had some sort of opportunity like that? And I love the application that you're talking about in terms of just this great idea someone had based as much out of technical knowledge and economic need as out of just love for yeah. what they're doing. Um, and that's where I think my experience comes in. I love what I've done. I love the learning I've done and has taking data science classes and programming classes really equipped me to understand all the intricacies of a foundational AI model. There's a big gap there, but I would argue that it has given me more tools, that these tools help inform a lot of things, and if nothing else, just the effort, just the interest uh, that would lead you to take the first step in learning is going to make you more open, more receptive, and, and, and more able to grasp and appreciate some of these amazing things that are going on around us. So we have a few minutes left. As we, as we wrap this up, I'm wondering, as a consumer... Mm-hmm. A, a, a gentleman of a certain age, I must say, a little bit younger than me, but I think six or nine days, days yeah, or yeah. whatever it is, something like that. Um, 
how do you how do you see this world playing out both for people of whether they're they're not in your exact situation like they they might need to career change because things are changing their choice or not their choice or young person as we've talked about now how does this world not necessarily what you hope because you're a pretty optimistic person in a lot of these ways but what do you think that looks like and what's the other than what we've talked about now what's the value sort of of that looking forward in the next let's let's not say 20 years but just in the next few years where do you think we're going or where do you think we really need to be focusing on to make sure i mean one of the things i hear all the time is if if we want human beings if we want to change the big ideas of the world we're going to have to do it through education and i don't know that i always agree with that we have base requirements and tendencies as human beings but certainly if it's not the whole of the thing it is part of the thing and let me prime the pump with this pump with this one thing I had a woman on here one of my most fascinating interviews of last year for me personally Her name is Jenny Wild and Jenny um, she's out of uh, New Zealand she's an Aussie in New Zealand I believe I may have that backwards she's a really interesting lady and she's talking constantly about the need to innovate system of systems and without going into that whole I still don't get it entirely conversation but one of the examples she gave while she's in industry now for the longest time she worked in international aid she's one of those people that you would call one of the most beautiful people on earth that would go to a Haiti and help set up the system to rescue people or Syria refugee camp or just pick pick one either a reaction to a war event or a a natural disaster or whatever. And one of her examples and her passions was, look, we've got to change these systems because while I can go to a Syrian refugee camp and help bring them food or whatever, how am I going to educate those children to get out of there? In other words, if another country would be willing to receive, they probably won't take the parents. They sure wouldn't take the grandparents. But maybe these children that hopefully are are not tainted by any political or whatever, but they got to have skills. And so if I can get education, if I can, if we can learn, if we can create an education program that works through cell phones or cellular te- technology or things not thought of yet to where they can get French classes from France or, you know, whatever, all these different things. And I can, I can get, beam them down to these camps of hundreds of thousands of people out in the middle of Palestine or wherever that m- would never normally get an opportunity. They don't just need me to, in an environmentally friendly way, pack up more food stuff. Of course, they need things like that. That's just perpetuating something. I need to break cycles. I need to help in a way. And as we're talking, so this conversation reminded me of that because we're talking about education. So as a primer to sort of how you see this or what you hope for in the future, this idea of continuing education for a spectrum um, how do you imagine that playing out? And you can tackle that in any way. People of our age group, younger, older, not many older, what, whatever you feel like. Well, one thing that I didn't talk about, there was this time after I, grad, after I graduated, after I retired, mm-hmm. graduated from working, mm-hmm. uh, when I was looking for an inspiration, I knew I wanted to do Had a little bit more. Had we met yet? Uh, no. Okay. No. Uh, but I was inspired at that time by a... a uh, blog post, a medium post, mm. by a young engineer named Austin Tackerberry. Ah. Uh, he was a chemical engineer doing process control 
and he wanted to become a programmer. Hadn't done a lot of programming, a little bit. Uh -huh. And this sounds very familiar. I was an electrical engineer doing process control, and right. in my career I did some uh, programming, but not a whole lot. But he blazed his trail of going from one industry to another. Uh, and what was important to me was that he blazed that trail for other people to follow him. So here's a guy probably 30 years younger than me, God help me, <laughs> uh, and I'm inspired by what he did. And right. I looked, I took his uh, blog post, and I made it into a checklist. If I'd had, if I'd had GPT-3 at the time, I would have asked it to make right. it into a checklist. But I made it into a checklist, and I followed 60 70% of that checklist through um, an Audace, a, uh, uh, Udemy class on programming through CS50, into the areas that I was interested in. Uh, and I think that in terms of some of these issues you're talking about, uh, these, that a lot of these, these people, I, the uh, International Rescue Committee is one of the charities that I support. Mm -hmm. uh, and from reading some of the reading and some of the stuff going on there, uh, like all people, these aren't homogenous. I mean, we're talking about wide variety of skills, interests, situations right. that cause people to end up in these camps right. where we don't have a good path to help them get out. Right. Uh, and that is something that I hope artificial intelligence, that some of these other tools that we're talking about mm -hmm. can help with, but that I think uh, even more important will be the generosity of spirit that might lead someone to not just change their life, but to write down how they did it in the hopes that they might help someone else change their life. The generosity of spirit that helps us understand or care about the feelings of somebody who might have been born in a refugee camp and be, can be a teenager now mm -hmm. or have kids of their own now, mm -hmm. that kind of thing. Uh, I think that generosity of spirit will be even more important than the kind of tools we create. I, yes, and I love that. I think also, I guess if I'm being a pragmat, pragmatist, what's the single biggest supply chain issue in the world today? People, talent, sure. right? If there is a way I can extend into these, into these worlds of a sea of humanity, it's great on the one hand to say, and I would agree with you, a spirit of generosity is altruistic. We should rescue. We should be about human beings flourish. I'm hoping also the pragmatist of people who don't necessarily feel like that, like that's a secondary condition. But if the whole world, so right now we're in my industry is mostly men of a certain ethnicity of a certain age. Um, because that's where the industry got built in the sure. 80s, really, and into the early 90s. And now my director of development here, Lainey, is a young woman in her early 30s, I'm imagining, from Georgia Tech. And she's in charge of all the critical infrastructure development. Genius person. Mm. Brilliant managing team. Half of her team um, does not look like me. And... Um, and it's not because they have a mandate, let's go get people that don't look like him. I'm already out there all over the place um, in our industry. They're just going to non-traditional places. I'm looking for gender and ethnicity and ages and 
language backgrounds and whatever because I, I need people to solve this problem uh, of uh, this particular supply chain issue of talent that have the intellectual ability and the uh, curiosity and the ethic and all these other things. And this resource has been mined out. So now I'm looking at non non-traditional places and I, I'm hoping that we can leverage stuff like this, whether it's under the guise of continuing education or just primary education, where I can tap into these spots in the world where however it is that these eddies have been built on the side of a river of a collection of stuff of people that can find um, find an opportunity. So if I'm a if I'm a if I have the ability to help connect, I've I heard um, not this exactly, but one of the groups that's really impressed me is I've got to listen to some of the community involvement people from uh, Meta. Okay, they have really strong programs here in North America. I imagine in other places in the world, but here in North America, and we're not. I'm not a show for Meta, but they they go into these areas where they help bring education and infrastructure and whatever and facilitate the teachers or uh, um, help teach, not just facilitate the teaching. It's amazing how much they can, because they know I need these resources in the future. Yes, it's altruistic. Yes, we want to be good partners. Yes, it's great PR. And I would love to create smart people that really want to come work for our organization. I think more and more companies are going to have to develop an EQ to go along with the, you know, uh, empathy quotient sure. to go along with the IQ. And so if we could take these tools which I think is one of the things that Jenna, Jenny hopes, and extend them into these worlds and and bring an education platform where, you know, I, wow, look at this. I've got some really smart people here um, that have the raw material to solve AI problems, to be coders, to be programmers, to be whatever, work in this world. They just happen to be out here. Hopefully, we can bring some of that magic there and and get them out of those situations. I, I hope that is a way that we will leverage that, because we're, you know, we're we're facing this conundrum of um, human capital, uh, and people trapped. Absolutely, and the we can't predict exactly what tools we'll need. Mm. So just the effort of building tools, just the effort of understanding them and appreciating them, and learning more about them. I think will be key to that. Yeah. I can't tell you what the solution is. Again, I'm a skeptic of the solution in any case. Uh, and I love, but I love what a lot of people have done. I hope that we don't necessarily go to every group and say, do it that way. Right. But that we make these learnings available so that they can adopt them. And, and this is very important because, again, in my industry back in the day when I still had a job, uh, feedback. And measurement was a gigantic thing. Mm -hmm. If you want to control the temperature in a refinery vessel and then you're using that refinery vessel to boil oil to make uh, gasoline, you want to make sure that you get the right measurement. Right. If you measure what people are learning and understand the, uh, the um, facets of a person that might make them successful for what you need or for what other people might need, I think it's just natural and easier to be able to teach them, identify people who have these things, but teach others how to get some of these things. And it won't be one recipe. It won't be one template. Um, I think the mistake that we make is that we, because we don't have access to all of this knowledge, we use the templates that we can see with our eyes, and what you can see with your eyes can be very misleading. 
It can. Well, James, thanks for coming in today. David, I really enjoyed it. Thanks a, for inviting me. We had a great conversation, um, and all these tools we've been kicking around, we'll, we'll link to the more interesting ones uh, in the description below. I can also give you a link to uh, that blog post by Austin Tackberry if your listeners would be interested. I'm sure they would be. Thanks for coming on. And if you've enjoyed the conversation, please like, share, subscribe, and comment. We'll see you on the next one, everybody. Take care.